Today's episode is sponsored by Monk's Bread. Monk's Bread has wonderful flavors. I've tried several. They have a raisin cinnamon, a maple cinnamon, and a seasonal pumpkin spice bread, which are delicious treats for the whole family. I know right now we're getting ready for Christmas. We are buying our Christmas gifts. And I'd encourage you to head on over to monksbread.com and look at their selection of what they have that might make a wonderful Christmas gift for somebody in your life. When you support Monk's Bread, you are supporting the monks at the Abbey of the Genesee in New York. They have lots of different things available for purchase. More than just bread, they have their famous biscotti, fruitcake, jams, and more. So if you go over to monksbread.com and use the discount code MARY23, you'll be saving at checkout and you'll be saving money on your Christmas gift for someone you love in your life. Support the monks at the Abbey of the Genesee by ordering today at monksbread.com. That's monksbread.com with discount code MARY23. Hello, my name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. I have done some collaborative work with Tan Books in the past, uh, especially reading The Mystical City of God in a year, and we actually have a few other projects that are coming out next year, so you can stay tuned for that. But one of the things I love about Tan Books is some of the series that they do. So a few years ago, and listeners will remember this, Catherine Jean Lopez joined the show to talk about A Year with the Mystics, a book that she had compiled of the different writings of the saints that she really had fallen in love with and mystics alike. So they also have a book, A Year with the Saints, and uh, several others in that genre. It's a very nice book. It's got imitation leather as the cover. It has a ribbon. It's really meant to be a daily devotional to take you through a year, 365 days, or maybe even 366 if it's a leap year, uh, but to take you through the different writings and such of holy men and women. So I love the book. I love the idea. And when they reached out to me and told me that Father Jeff Kirby had done A Year with the Popes, I said, that's ingenious. I love the Holy Fathers. I love popes new and old. And I thought this would be a wonderful work, a wonderful resource. Father Jeff Kirby is an author. He's known for his media work. He actually has been on this podcast before talking about the scapular because he wrote a nine-day novena to prepare people to enroll themselves in the brown scapular. So Father Kirby joins me again today. So thanks so much, Father Kirby, for taking time out of your life as a pastor uh, to join another pastor in conversation. So thanks so much. My pleasure, Father. Thank you very much. This is, I, I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, so why don't we just get to it right away, A Year with the Popes. What's the structure of your devotional book like, uh, and what can people expect if they go out and order and say, this is the devotional for me for 2024? Yeah, so first I'd like to just let people know that when we talk about a year with the Pope, 365 days, 
Uh, that doesn't mean something has to start on January 1st. So they, they can pick it up when, whenever they want. So, you know, the, the days aren't designated by the calendar. So if someone wants to start on, you know, uh, you know, December 10th or January 1st or January 21st or, or whatever it is, they can start any time. It's just 365 days. The meditations are there. Um, and and you probably don't even have to do it in succession. So you can miss a day here and there and just pick it up. But the idea of 365 days. Exactly. In fact, I know some people with other um, versions in the series will sometimes even just do, for example, seven days at a time during a weekly holy hour. Or they have like a desert day once a month, a kind of mini retreat, and they just do a few then. So it can be very casual. Um, you know, I'm very big on not, you know, adding pressure to people, especially when they're trying to do something devotional. So the book can be very fluid, as, as fluid uh, as someone would want it to be. Uh, each day begins with the uh, intro paragraph. Oftentimes that paragraph can be important because, you know, you're talking about 2,000 years of, of history and, you know, hundreds of popes. You, you definitely need a context. And so there's an intro paragraph to kind of help set the, the quote. And then there's a quote from one of the Holy Fathers. And it could be doctrinal or spiritual or sometimes addressing a historical issue. Uh, all of them are meant to have some type of spiritual application, but, but the quotes are very diverse. And then after that, there are about two questions, which is meant to help us apply what the particular Pope has said to our own lives, our own discipleship. And then it concludes with a prayer. And so the whole thing can be done in five, eight minutes. Uh, if someone wanted to take more of a meditative read, it could go longer. But this is not meant to be a huge or overwhelming devotional. It's meant to be a help to nurture in our hearts a great love for the office of St. Peter, to develop a greater spirituality under the guidance of the Holy Fathers. We had some amazing spiritual masters as Holy Fathers through the history of the Church. Everyone wants to talk about the bad popes, and I address them. But let's talk about the really good and saintly popes, which are the vast majority of the men who were pope. Yeah, so your book, A Year with the Popes, that you have compiled and worked on with Tan Books, doesn't just cover Francis, Benedict, John Paul II, and recent popes, but you're looking at the whole gamut of church history. Absolutely. In fact, the, the first few days actually go to the prophets in the Old Testament, and it shows how the office of the Pope, the, the prime minister, the key bearer of the kingdom of David was prophesied and how the Lord fulfilled those prophecies by establishing the papal office. So it starts in the prophets, it goes all through the Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, the two letters of St. Peter. And that first part, I really wanted to make sure that we gave it due attention to really establish in the mind of the readers and, and those who are using this for their spiritual lives a real foundation in the biblical basis of the papal office. That this was an essential office prophesied and fulfilled by the Lord Jesus. And, and as Catholics, we need to understand that because, regrettably, we've gotten very comfortable apologizing for things that are Catholic. And, and I think it's important that as we do this 365 days this year with the popes that we start with the scriptures. And after that, you know, just kind of highlight some of our early popes after Peter. And then after that, it really is just kind of a leapfrog through the history of the church, highlighting spiritual, historical, doctrinal issues from the pope. So, 
you know, someone ever wondered, you know, what did the Pope say about the slave trade? Or what really was that situation with Galileo? Or, you know, what did the Pope have to say about Christopher Columbus? And, and all that's in the book and so much more. So it's really meant to kind of help us in our spiritual lives, but also really develop a deep and profound love and devotion for the papal office, for, for the Holy Father. Uh, I'm very moved, Father, in you know, Acts of the Apostles, when we're told that the early Christians would line the streets with the hope that the shadow of Peter would fall upon them, because even mm. his shadow had the power to heal. And so that kind of love and devotion, I, I think we need a greater context in order to help us have that devotion. I know some people are struggling right now in terms of some of the you know, decisions and, and teachings of Pope Francis. And to put it in the broader context of the papal office through the, through the ages and to say, okay, this is one papal office, one, one man who's holding the office, who is attempting to guide the church as, as he sees the Holy Spirit doing, you know, calling forth from him. But when we put it in the broader context of all the popes and in the context of sacred tradition, suddenly people can get less, less worried you know, and, and less defensive and have more confidence in their true greater love for the Holy Father. Yeah, and as you kind of mentioned Pope Francis there, what's interesting to me is kind of we have this over-obsession as a culture, and because really of where we're at with the media and everything like that, you think about some of these earlier popes that you reference in A Year with the Popes. They lived in a time where there wasn't a lot of communication. They lived in Rome, they did their thing in Rome, but it wasn't known by every person throughout the world. It wasn't being covered by CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or whatever. So there is kind of this dissemination of information so quickly. And I'm willing to bet then that some of these earlier popes, a lot of their writings aren't known by a lot of people because it wasn't widely distributed as it might be today. Is that a good sense? Absolutely. In fact, one of the early popes that I highlight is Pope Clement. So he's the fourth pope, the third successor of St. Peter. And a lot of people maybe never have even heard of him or his writings. Uh, his main letter to the Corinthians actually predates a lot of the New Testament, and the only reason why his letters not in the New Testament is because he was third generation, and the early fathers said we're only going to res- we're going to restrict the New Testament to first and second generation to guard the eyewitness testimony. And so Clement wrote this very powerful letter. Of course, you know we studied it in seminary. Most people who study theology are aware of the letter, but yeah, you know, the average Catholic isn't. And so to read that letter and be moved by the fact that Clement, as Pope, is continuing the work of St. Paul, because, of course, Paul had to write two letters to the Corinthians. It was a port city. The faith was always threatened in Corinth. They were some real troublemakers, right? And Clement has to continue this type of teaching with, with the Corinthians. And, and actually, Clement is, is very stern with the Corinthians, far more stern than Paul was. And, and so just by reading that, sometimes people can be a little caught off guard by this early teaching, the fact that we have this letter, the fact that some of the things that Clement taught, like, for example, Clement says very clearly, if you are not with your bishop, then you're with the devil. You know, and so that, that kind of just affirmation of the importance of the office of the bishop, that if your bishop is in apostolic succession, your bishop is following faith and morals, you have to follow him. And if you're not following him, 
then you're following the devil. Now that that can startle us today, <laughs> because you know it's like, wow, okay, there it is, cut and dry. And to your point, Father, how many people other than the Corinthians would have been familiar with Clement's letter at the time? Very few, very few. The fact that it was retained and then disseminated later, of course, shows that it was a valued letter, but not a very popular letter at the time. So you mentioned earlier a little bit about the corrupt popes. People like to focus on them. And then we have in the church kind of some schisms that happen, maybe some... uh, opposition uh, in terms of, of the papacy as well. You have holy women for like St. Catherine of Siena that rise up, that confront the Holy Father and basically tell him that he needs to change his ways. Uh, what can you tell us about the Avignon papacy? So that was kind of the big uh, question of the papacy uh, w- within the church, just kind of there were two parallel popes and who is the real pope and everything. And and uh, I think maybe it's a forgotten aspect of history. And then when people hear it, they're like, well, how do we know what was right? Yes, yes, yes. And and, and, I, and I, I try to address that part um, as respectfully as possible. Uh, so the Avignon papacy was a period of about 80 years or so where the papacy was in southern France. It was actually a colony of Rome. So Technically, he was the Pope was still in Rome, but definitely far from the actual city of Rome. And it was a time of great corruption. Uh, the Popes became uh, real puppets to the French monarch. And again, it was just a very difficult time in the history of the Church. And, and of course, the Avignon Papers is also at the time when we have the Black Death. So this massive plague, and the Holy Father, in many respects, kind of just locks himself up in the room and just ignores you know, civilization ignores the needs of the church. And so a really difficult time. And so going through that period and trying to find, you know, ways to address some issues uh, to highlight, you know, in in full transparency, like, you know, where we were, what was happening. And then to your point, Father, the response of the Holy Spirit to this. So God raised up immense saints at this time to lead and guide the church. And so when the Avignon papacy was moved back, and the papacy returned back to Rome. There's multiple men contending for the position. Like, what was the principle by which they would know who the real pope was? And of course, it was always the Roman mind. So, who who was the bishop of Rome? Who was the one who was actually elected? Who was actually in there in the seat in Rome? And and going through, you know, those principles and and, and how they were applied, and and how the average believer was to try to make sense of an extremely turbulent time in the history of the church, walking through that, and then simultaneously addressing some of the spiritual responses that were happening. So the great saints that were rising up also highlights of spiritual practices that were mentioned during this time period that is forgotten in most histories, but were definitely stressed at the time because you know, the, the shepherds of the church realized the faithful were completely confused, uh, were um you know, felt displaced in, in terms of, of their own identity with the church and, and where the church was. So the, the book addresses that. And, and also, um, you know, in that whole period, I make the point that I think a lot of times is forgotten, is that the weakening of the moral authority of the Pope during the Avignon Papacy is why the Roman Popes, once reestablished in Rome, felt the need to be warrior Popes, they built massive churches. They engaged in war because they very much felt that they had to reestablish the moral authority of the Pope. Now, their impetus was right. 
their means were completely wrong. <laughs> so you would have thought that they would have said, we need to make the, the papacy strong again. Let's respond with greater holiness or more selfless service to the poor and so on. And that's not the case. And because of that, there was even a greater outcry for reform, which, of course, eventually led to the Protestant Reformation. And, and I try in that part to be as fair as possible to the reformers, especially early on when they really were just calling for reform. They were just saying, we need, you know, we need to fix this. Something's wrong with the church. And then, of course, as they continued to push things and eventually fell into schism. So I walked through all that and try to be as light as possible because, you know, this isn't meant to be heavy for people, but to address what was going on, what was the response, and really through it all to show the working of the Holy Spirit that even in a time of negligent popes, bad popes, the church was still doing the work of God. The church was still being guided by the Holy Spirit. There have been lots of popes throughout our church's history, but three of them have been given the name The Great. So, uh, in fact, we're talking right here in the month of November, and we'll celebrate Pope Leo the Great. And then we have Pope Gregory the Great, and people have attached the great title to John Paul II, St. John Paul the Great. So how does a pope come to be recognized as the great? Yes, actually, it, amazingly, it is by popular acclamation. So there's actually no formal declaration by the church. Uh, so, of course, Leo received the great because he you know, protected Rome against Attila the Hun. And, and Gregory was the great because... He was such a hands-on bishop of Rome. In fact, Pope Gregory said, if one man dies of poverty in Rome, my soul is in peril as bishop. And so they were the, the title of the great are given to popes out of the devotedness and the love of the faithful. And, and we see that with John Paul II. There's been no decree, and yet it becomes popular jargon, it becomes popular usage that we just refer to him as John Paul the Great. And that's how it happens. It, in one sense, it's very beautiful because you see just the real sense of the faithful that this is rising up from the hearts and the, and the grassroots to declare a particular pope the great. As you were doing your study of the Holy Fathers, because I'm sure you had to immerse yourself in their writings, and then I'm guessing that a lot of their writings were in Latin, so maybe you had to translate it yourself. Uh, was there anything that surprised you uh, in your study of the popes, any fact or statement or something like that that was really surprising? Yes, and, and I want to be as fair and, 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 and kind as possible. But I think the thing that most surprised me is that we have never until now had a pope so challenged the moral tradition of the church. So we've had some real, real scumbags as pope. Um, massive mistresses and illegitimate children and and so on. But none of them have ever attempted to meddle or obscure the moral teachings of the church. They were always clear. So, for example, Alexander VI, the Borgia Pope, the family was from Spain, so they always had to kind of prove that they were Romans because they weren't originally from the city of Rome. They were not of the noble families of Rome. And Alexander VI, he could be cruel. He poisoned his enemies. He had mistresses, illegitimate children. He 
forced the Catholic crowns of Europe to legitimize his illegitimate children so they could receive noble titles. Just a really, yeah, a really difficult and a person of, of low character, you know. And yet, never did he attempt to engage in the moral tradition of the church. In fact, he's the one who wrote the Angelus Prayer that many of us pray three times a day. He was the one who gave us the line of demarcation that prevented world war between Spain and Portugal. Um, so not until the contemporary era do we have the attempt to muddle or to obscure the moral tradition of the church. That That's unique. That's a, that's a challenge we face in our day. And that's the one that struck me because I thought, well, certainly some of these other popes, the Medicines, the Borgias or something, would have tried to justify or rationalize their moral behavior. But no, they just ignored it. So I think it's a particular challenge of our contemporary era. And isn't it interesting, too, that Pope Paul VI, when he wrote Humane Vitae, he was being advised by every person that was surrounding him, oh, no, you better not write this encyclical uh, you know, you should really approve of it, everybody else's. But he took the stand and he said, no, no, I have to write Humane Vitae. And, and then we kind of see the, the propheticness of it, that the certain things he said, well, if contraception becomes widespread, this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, he was right. So, so I always look to him, kind of this moral courage that he stood up against people that were advising him otherwise. Absolutely. And, and, and a similar spirit, when John Paul II issued Veritatis Splendor, so the encyclical on moral theology, it was the first time in the history of the church that a document like that had to be written. And and I think in, in so many respects, as with Humanae Vitae, so with Veritatis Splendor, they were very prophetic, because it's precisely those principles that are helping us to um, navigate current waters. And... Um, and so I do. I, I definitely see the Holy Spirit working and preparing uh, the church and, and allowing at times some type of tribulation in order to purify the church. Uh, I've often told times told people like, you know, you, you study the history of the church, study salvation history in the scriptures, and, and we realize that everything happens either because of God's, you know, active will or His permissive will. Not nothing surprises God. It's not. Oh, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> so. Everything that happens, whatever leader we get, whatever challenge there are, challenges there might be or, or, or are, um, it is being permitted by God's will, which means there is some greater good that could come from it if we allow it. So if we understand, okay, you know, this questionable leader or this bad leader or whatever it might be, this is also part of God's permissive will. And our task as baptized Christians is to love the Holy Father, to, you know, support the work of the gospel. And when something is lacking within the body of Christ, as St. Paul tells us, we make up for what is lacking by pursuing even greater holiness. This is a podcast called How They Love Mary. I am a Marian theologian. I like popularizing and promoting devotion to Our Lady. So, of course, we have had holy fathers that have been tremendously devoted to Our Lady. Even Pope Francis, 
uh, his little tribute to Our Lady every time when he goes to St. Mary Major and prays before um, that statue of Our Lady. Um, Then you had Benedict, who loved to pray in front of a statue in the Vatican Gardens and was a pilgrim as well to holy places. John Paul II Um, Marian consecration changed his life. So you can kind of see the devotion of Our Lady. Uh, In some of the popes, Paul VI wrote Mariolus Cultus. We had had the the dogmatic definition of the Assumption, the Immaculate Conception. So I guess, what what else is there to learn from the Holy Fathers about devotion to Mary? Well, I'm so glad you asked that uh, question, Father, because I go all the way back as far as can be recorded and show how the Holy Fathers have emphasized, stressed, highlighted, uh, you know, exhorted the praying of the rosary. So all the way back to Pius V and, and, and before the Battle of Lepanto, I actually have the actual call from the Holy Father to for Christians to pray the rosary, uh, to protect the faith. Um, and then also, Leo the Thirteenth, of course, wrote the most encyclicals of, of the Rosary, and so trying to go through that. You mentioned, of course, Pius the Ninth, and then Pius the Tenth, who, in his great attempt to bring reform to the Church, to battle against modernism, regularly turned to Our Lady, exhorted the faithful to pray the Rosary in order to guard the integrity of faith. And so, anyone who knows the history of the papacy, and, and perhaps this book here with the Popes can help will definitely see a consistent theme in terms of the strong encouragement to Marian devotion and specifically the praying of the rosary. Who is your favorite Pope? Yes. Okay. I have to tell you this, Father. Um, Full disclosure, my original proposal for this book was a year with John Paul II. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and and the publishers came back and said, how about we broaden it and, and do a year with the Pope? So I thought that, that, that makes more sense. But um, maybe it's historical bias, but you know we're, we're both a part of the JP2 generation. So my, my heart always goes to John Paul II. He is, in fact, the book is dedicated to him and in gratitude for his priestly witness. So while there are many Holy Fathers, that I knew of before that I have learned of since doing the book that definitely bring esteem and devotion from my heart and definitely call me to greater holiness. Um, John Paul II holds number one in my heart. Uh, what's your favorite papal writing? So surprisingly, um, you know, in seminary we study about modernism and, and various things of that sort. And so I was familiar with, the whole era of Pius IX, Pius X. But I have to say I was very moved in the preparation of the book. Uh, I was moved by the writings of Pius X, especially in his defense of the faith against modernism. Mm. And um, and I don't mean that in some type of, like, you know, exaggerated form or anything like that. Like, you know, I don't see modernists under every rock, you know, Um but I was very moved by his pastor's heart exhorting the faithful and especially the bishops to not strip the doctrine of its objectivity and, and to be honest and to speak clearly and to allow the truth to be given to the faithful so they could work out their salvation in Jesus Christ. So that was, you know, I think stands out in my heart in terms of, of post work on the book. 
before the book, I would have, I would have said Veritatis Splendor. You're, you're a Marian theologian. I'm a moral theologian. So, of course, my heart goes to Veritatis Splendor, <laughs> the encyclical on, on moral theology. But, but since the work, um, the writings of Pius and Tantum kind of stood out for me uh, more than what they previously did. Who do you think has been an overlooked pope that maybe we don't talk about enough, but you, you believe maybe he made a, a pretty significant contribution? Yes, so I think Benedict the Fifteenth, the uh, World War One Pope. I uh, put some quotes in from him. Um, I think he's very overlooked. Um, he he was a sickly man and, and apparently did not have a, a commanding presence, which which hurt him regrettably. But in his writings, he is exhorting the crowns of Europe. Before World War One, we're talking about monarchies. And, and so on, and, and all of them were Christian. And he's just writing and exhorting them, saying, we are Christians. Like, what is the rest of the world to think if here, Christendom, Europe, is tearing itself apart? And and, and I, I was like, wow, why have I not read these before? Why, why is this not highlighted? Like, you know, the champion he was for peace um, that I think is, is overlooked. And, and if I could just mention one other, I think Pius XI is also overlooked uh, his condemnation of anti-Semitism, his condemnation of Nazism, um, horribly overlooked. Um, and I make sure I, I put that in the, in the book because I'm thinking here, here's the doctrine here, here, here is the, the moral exhortation in terms of these ideologies of the 20th century. And, and that regrettably has also been overlooked. So John Paul, the first reigned for, I think 33 days uh, very short papacy. Uh, did he accomplish anything in those days? <laughs> so it's interesting. He's called the September Pope. He was, as you're indicating, he was Pope for just a little over a month. And I think if we were to be attempt to be as fair as possible, he gave a great smile to the papacy. Um, you know, towards the end, Paul VI, for health reasons and his own. Um, distress over, um, you know, where the reform was going for Vatican II became very somber. Um, and, and, you know, so here comes John Paul I, and he has this energetic and this bright smile, you know, this, this contagious smile that what was really evangelical, uh, apostolic. And um, he, other than that witness, he did actually very little. In fact, I put one selection of a Wednesday audience that he gave it was on friendship and um, you know, how to use friendship to influence people to know Jesus Christ. And uh, so I was able to pull that from one of his audiences, but you know, we have no formal encyclicals or exhortations from him. It was really just his presence, uh, that kind of freshness, that smile, and a few Wednesday audiences that we have from him. Interesting. Well, this is what people can expect to find in A Year with the Pope, different excerpts from the writings of the Holy Fathers uh, throughout the history of Catholicism. And uh, as people pick up the book, what's the one thing you're hoping they take away? A, a greater love for the papal office, a greater love for the Holy Father, and to just be imbued with the awe and the wonder of this amazing you know, fatherly office has been given to us by Jesus Christ. 
And Father, do you have a website? How could people get a copy of A Year with the Popes? I'm very excited to have my own copy and hope to uh, make my way through it myself to have that greater appreciation for the Holy Fathers. Yes, yes. So uh, my website is frkirby.com. The book can also be purchased through TAN Books and is also available on the EWTN Religious Catalog. Well, that's wonderful. If you're looking for some spiritual reading, I would recommend A Year with the Popes because they can be a good companion helping us to come to know Jesus and Mary and all the saints all the more. So thanks so much, Father Kirby, for joining me today to talk about your new book. My pleasure, Father. Take care. Today's episode is sponsored by Monk's Bread. Monk's Bread has wonderful flavors. I've tried several They have a raisin cinnamon, a maple cinnamon, and a seasonal pumpkin spice bread, which are delicious treats for the whole family. I know right now we're getting ready for Christmas. We are buying our Christmas gifts. And I'd encourage you to head on over to monksbread.com and look at their selection of what they have that might make a wonderful Christmas gift for somebody in your life. When you support Monk's Bread, you are supporting the monks at the Abbey of the Genesee in New York. They have lots of different things available for purchase, more than just bread. They have their famous biscotti, fruitcake, jams, and more. So if you go over to monksbread.com and use the discount code MARY23, you'll be saving at checkout and you'll be saving money on your Christmas gift for someone you love in your life. Support the monks at the Abbey of the Genesee by ordering today at monksbread.com. That's monksbread.com with discount code MARY23. 